This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If I haven't met you, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited because today we're starting a new series. So if you are uh, new with us, you're getting in right as we begin. And we're going to do a series on the parables uh, of the Bible, of the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels. We're going to look at not all of the parables Jesus told, but a number of them. And the series is called The Storyteller, because Jesus told stories, parables. It's called The Storyteller, Encountering Jesus through his parables. So our goal is to know him better uh, as we study the parables. Uh, Out in our resource center, we have a a recommended book uh, that I want to recommend to you. It's called The Storytelling God by Jared Wilson, Seeing the Glory of Jesus and His Parables. And in this book, he sort of explains in some detail what parables are. He looks at a lot of the parables that Jesus tells and explains them. I'm using that as a resource as I study and prepare for these sermons, and I want to make that available. Between here and the the cafe over there is a little wall with some resources on it, and uh, so we're going to uh, sell books that tie into the various series that we're doing. It's not like a bookstore, but just uh, a small number of targeted books uh, that would focus on the things we're talking about. So uh, we'll have another one for you next week, but this is the one we're going to be uh, looking at that I'd recommend, The Storytelling God by Jared Wilson. Uh, If you have a Bible or a device with Bible on it, open up to Mark chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's there's one of these uh, Bibles right in the chair in front of you. There's a basket below it, and you can grab a Bible and turn to page 489 page 489. That's where you'll find Mark 4 uh, in that Bible. So I'm going to read Mark 4 verses 1 through 9 uh, from the ESV version, and then we'll look at the uh, next verses, uh, following verses 1 through 9, in just a moment as we walk through. But first of all, I just want to read these uh, opening verses. Mark 4 verses 1 through 9. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray that God would give us ears to hear this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we come this morning and we ask that you would speak to us from your word for it is our authority 
and we believe that you reveal yourself clearly through it. So we ask today that you would speak to each of us. We are gathered here from different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, different uh, situations and circumstances in our lives, but the one thing every one of us has in common is that we need to hear from you. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying. Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our eyes, that we may understand Jesus, who he is, and what he's done today in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our typical, if you're new here, our typical approach is to read a passage of Scripture and then just to walk through it. Normally, we do that with whole books of the Bible, not on a Sunday, but over many Sundays, walk through a book. But this series, we're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus Christ, that relay his life. And each, t- each week, we will take a section of Scripture, a parable, and we'll look at it and seek to understand it. So that, that'll be what our method will be. It says in verse 2 here... Uh, that he got into a boat uh, on the sea because there's a large crowd and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them, verse 2, he was teaching them many things in parables. So Jesus is gathering a group of people and he's teaching them parables. Now, if you are new to the Bible, uh, you may not know what a parable is and you came at a great time. If you are familiar with the Bible, it's a, there's a very good chance you don't know what a parable is, and I don't know what a parable is. We've read them, we're familiar with them, but do we really understand how a parable functions? What's the purpose of a parable? How does Jesus, in particular, use parables. And so if you're new to the Bible, uh, we've all got a lot to learn about parables, so feel, feel right at home here. We're all trying to learn what this is about. Some people think of a parable like a sermon illustration. So I'm preaching a sermon right now, Jesus taught sermons, and in a minute I might give an illustration. I might say, you know, this reminds me, uh, last week I was at a baseball game and I tell you a little story that helps clarify the point I'm trying to make in the sermon. And so some people think parables are Jesus is preaching along and then he tells a story to illustrate the point. But they're not illustrations. They're not sermon illustrations because you know what happens when Jesus tells a parable? Some people get a clear teaching and for other people what he says is obscured. It's less clear. We're going to see that in a minute. As a matter of fact, the disciples don't even understand this parable. They have to get with Jesus afterwards and say, tell us the meaning of the parable. Now, one thing I know about sermon illustrations is I would feel like an utter failure if I have to explain the illustration. The illustration explains the point. If I have to explain the illustration, which explains the point, I didn't tell a very good illustration. So a parable is not an illustration. A parable also, it's, it's not an allegory. Some people think a parable, well, it's like a story, and so we've got to go on a spiritual scavenger hunt and mine every detail because everything is symbolic of something. And so that leaf, that represents, and, and every detail is just mined out as an allegory. But that's not how the parables function either. Generally, they have a central point. Maybe a couple of central points, uh, but they're, they're not finely, uh, you know, uh, finely crafted allegories. Some people think they're like a spiritual folk tale. So a parable is a story with a moral to it. it it's sort of like uh, Aesop's fables. We're gonna, Jesus is going to tell us a good story. The storyteller is going to tell us a good story, and then we're going to come up and say, the moral of the parable is be good. Uh, be nice, uh, whatever it might be. 
But they're not really moral lessons because most of the parables don't function to reveal uh, a moral attribute or a moral goal that we all want to attain to. They have a higher purpose than just teaching us a moral lesson like Aesop's fables. Parables, rather, they are comparisons. Parables are comparisons that take something very familiar to Jesus' first hearers. Now, some of these things, they're easy to understand, but they're not as familiar to us 2,000 years removed culturally. But parables take something that's very familiar to the original hearers, and in telling that account, it's usually a story, sometimes it's a, just a, a brief description, but taking something familiar to then use it to reveal a spiritual truth that's very unfamiliar. Taking something very familiar and comparing it to reveal a spiritual truth that is unfamiliar. So parables take familiar things like this. There was a lady and she lost a coin and she was looking for it. And Jesus tells the story and then makes a point about that. Or something like this. If you're, if you're going to bake bread and you have dough and you put a little yeast in it and you stir it up, here's what happens. And it's not a cooking lesson, but Jesus is revealing something from that parable. Or he tells a parable like this. There was a guy, and he got robbed, and he got beaten up, and people, you know, walked right by him, but someone stopped to help him. You probably know that one. That's a parable of the good Samaritan. So it's just a common story. Somebody is in need of aid and help. Or the story that we just read right now, the parable we just read. There's a farmer, and he's sowing. Sowing means to plant. So he is, he is planting seeds, and when he plants these seeds out, there's different results uh, in his plot of land. It's just a simple story, but the stories reveal something. They're comparisons. They're comparisons that reveal something unknown to us about, usually, the kingdom of God. Like, Jesus will say this sometimes, the kingdom of God is like... And then he'll say, a woman looking for a coin or something like that. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God simply means the rule of God. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you a story, and this story, which is very familiar to you, is going to reveal something very unfamiliar to you about what it looks like when God reigns. That's the kingdom of God. When God rules in our lives, when God rules in our church, when God rules through us, what does that look like? They reveal the kingdom of God, or they reveal the king himself, Jesus. So the parables point us to him. So they're not just, if we walk away and say, oh, I got it, the point of the story is be good, we've missed it. The point of the story will always be, this is what God is like, this is how he rules and reigns, and this is something we can see about Jesus who's telling the parable. They point to him. Uh, Now, they also reveal things about our own hearts. They reveal things about us but they do so so that we ultimately see him. When we hear a parable and the story is being told, oftentimes we're drawn into it. And as we're drawn into it, we begin to make judgments sometimes about the characters or about the circumstances of the story. But what we find in the parables is not only do they reveal Jesus, they reveal something about us. And as we're making judgments about the story, like, uh, you know, a guy owned a vineyard and he had workers in the vineyard and he sent someone to them and they killed him. And then he sent his son and the workers in the vineyard killed his son. And we're reacting. What, What do you mean they killed his son? That's terrible. So sometimes we react to the stories, we judge them. And what we find out is that we don't really judge the parables. The parables judge us. 
they reveal something about us as well. So you don't really read a parable. A parable reads you. And that's why it's not just an illustration. That's why it's not just a moral story. Because it is something that opens our heart and tells us something about Jesus. Now, here's something else we learn about the parables. I will not give this opening uh, introduction but one time. Every week I won't tell what a parable is. Uh, We'll just jump into them. But this first week I needed to give some background introduction. That's why I'm saying all this stuff before we get to the parable itself. Um, Here's the other thing about parables. Not everybody gets them. Not everybody gets them. And that's the point of the parable we're reading today, by the way. Not everyone understands. Jesus said in the parable we just read in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what does he mean? Are there some deaf people in the audience and we need a sign language, you know, someone to do uh, sign language to interpret what's being said? No, he's not talking about people who can't hear physically. They all heard what he said. He's saying, let the person who has spiritual ears hear and get the message, and not everyone does. To some people, they hear the story, and they are drawn in, and they see the storyteller. And they're drawn, their hearts are softened as they see their own need for Jesus, and they see Jesus. So some people hear the parable, and their hearts are softened, and they're drawn to Christ. Other people will hear the parable, hear the story, and it's just a story. It's just, it's just a guy talking. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense. So the parables, to some people, they reveal. To other people, the parables conceal. They, 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 they confirm the hard heart. They confirm blindness. Some people are spiritually blind, and it's confirmed when God himself tells them a story and they don't get it. Other people have softer hearts, and when God himself, Jesus is God, tells them a story, their hearts are opened to him. So the thing about the parables, it's like the old saying about the sun. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. That's how parables work. People hear them, and some people's hearts are hard already, and they grow harder. Other people hear them and their hearts soften. That's why he says, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's why we want to be praying throughout this series. That God would be softening hearts. That God would be opening hearts. Because the method of the teaching tool that we're using in and of itself, Jesus will say that some people do not get it. They are outside and some people are inside and they get it. So we want to pray that everyone who walks in these doors in the coming weeks... Uh, church folk and unchurched folk alike, non-church folk alike, that God gives us all ears to hear and that God speaks to us through these parables. Now, the parable we're looking at today, the reason we're starting this one is because this is like the prototype parable. This is the parable of parables. This is the parable that explains parables. This is a parable that's actually enacted. Jesus is actually doing the parable while he teaches it because this is a parable about seed going out and and ground receiving seed. And Jesus is going to explain it. We'll read it in a minute. And we're going to find that the seed is the word of God that's going out and the ground are the hearts of people receiving it. So Jesus is the one who is the sower in the story, ultimately. And so interesting how we get this, that it's an enacted parable. If you look at verse 2, it says, He got in a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. 
So Jesus is in a boat and everybody's on the land. The New Testament's originally written in Greek. And the Greek word that is translated land in verse 5 is translated soil. And in verse 8 is translated soil. So it says that Jesus is in a boat and all the people are on the soil and seed is being cast out on the soil. Jesus is, what he's doing here is he's tossing seed out. It looks like a teaching time, but he's tossing seed as he teaches truth. And it's a picture of Jesus and his way of bringing the kingdom of God by proclaiming and announcing who God is and what he's done. And then people are hearing it. The most used verb in this chapter is the verb to hear. As a matter of fact, the passage that we just read in his parable, verse 3, starts with this, listen. The first word of the parable is listen. What's the last word of the parable? Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever, there's how, to, there's how to interpret any part of the Bible, particularly a parable. Whenever it starts and ends with the same words, it's a good it's a good uh, clue that that's what it's all about. It's about hearing. So he's saying, some, that, that, that be careful how you hear to listen. Throughout the parable, it is an alert to be, be listening and to be careful how we do listen. So before we look at the various soils, I want to say a little bit about the sower. Ultimately, Jesus is the sower. Anytime the Word of God, the Scripture is taught, it's being sown. So it's being sown right now as well. To the degree I'm telling the truth about what the Bible teaches, the Word of God is being sown out right now, even as we're gathered. But I want to say a little bit about the sower first. Have you ever noticed, if you've read this parable before, or if you just read it for the first time, maybe you didn't notice notice this, but have you ever noticed that the planting method is really unusual for this farmer? It's really unusual. Seed is valuable. So what kind of farmer would throw seed on a path? What kind of farmer would take seed and throw it where there's very little soil and it's rocky soil so that it takes a little bit of root but then it dies because there's nowhere for the roots to go because it's rocky soil? What kind of farmer would take valuable time and valuable seed and throw it among rocky soil? Or what kind of farmer would plant seed uh, and not take care of the soil in some way where uh, weeds, thorns could grow up and choke the plants? What kind of farmer wouldn't just take the good soil which he's prepared, which he's plowed, and plant it, the fourth soil, the good soil, and get a big increase? Why would a farmer not do that? Well, there's two, there's two reasons. One is, has to do with uh, first century Palestinian farming. Someone did a PhD, I'm sure, at some time on first century Palestinian farming, and we can all benefit from whoever his or her insights were on this. Uh, because the way farmers in the first century, century planted was they cast out their seed on the ground and then they plowed the ground. So then they plowed and turned it over and worked it in. We would prepare the soil or plant first, wouldn't we? And then we would put the seed there. That's not how they did it. They cast the seed broadly, and then they, I guess they plowed like this. Or how, Obviously, my gardening skills are weak. I'm doing, I'm doing, I don't know, the whip and the nene or something up here and trying to plant. So they, I did, that just came to me. That's not my notes. 
So they, uh, so they, they, they uh, would plant, so they cast out the seeds and then they would plow the seed and turn it over and get, a, get their crop. So the first thing is what he's telling is very reasonable. It'd be a very reasonable thing to do that, that you wouldn't know that there's rock, limestone right under the soil if it was the first time you'd planted here and then you went to plow and found that out. Secondly, it represents what is going on in the ministry of Jesus. In chapter three, the chapter four, Jesus is being opposed. This is very important. He is being opposed. So what happens in chapter three is he heals a man on the Sabbath and some religious leaders get all upset about this and it says they plot to destroy him. Then his family comes in. His family thinks he is crazy. And his family comes in and says, what's going on? So his family approaches him. Then what happens after that? Religious leaders come down from Jerusalem and they say that Jesus is possessed of the devil. So they're saying, you are, all that you're doing, you're doing by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And then the chapter ends with this family coming back for him. So he has these people that don't understand him. They don't get him. They want to destroy him. They say he's of the devil, the religious leaders. So Jesus is getting all this opposition, but what's he doing? He continues to teach. He continues to teach. He continues to reach out with the word of God. Jesus is very different than the religious leaders. The religious leaders would only relate with a certain kind of person. The hyper, hyper fundamentalist Pharisees, uh, they would only look for certain kind of people to teach the word. But Jesus brings the word to everyone. He brings it to tax collectors who are the enemy of, of uh, the Jewish people. He brings, them to pros- he brings the word to prostitutes. He brings the, per- the word to children. He brings the word to anyone. Jesus is a farmer who's casting seed everywhere. He's very liberal. The Pharisees are hyper-conservative, and they have this very narrow view of who can be in the kingdom and who God loves and who's the right kind of person. But Jesus is generous. Jesus is liberal. Jesus is prodigal, which means generous, extravagantly generous. He is tossing seed everywhere. He will bring the truth of God to anyone. It doesn't matter their reputation. It doesn't matter. So that's why this picture is so powerful because the sower is sowing on all kinds of soil. He's not predetermining who can hear. He wants everyone to hear. And there's clear implications for us as individuals and as a church for that as well. So anyway, that's what the sower's doing. He's sowing in a normal way, uh, and he's sowing broadly because the message is to go broadly. Now let's look at the, the various kinds of people described as hearers. Look down in verse 14. We didn't read this yet, but in verse 14, Jesus is explaining the parable. And he says, the sower sows the word. That's the scripture for us, for Jesus, his very words. For us, it's the Bible. And these are the ones along the path. So remember, that was the first one. The first soil was a pathway. And he says, here the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them and takes away the word. So, so this, this seed doesn't have any effect. It, t- it takes no root at all. So the sower, the, the planter, the farmer, the sower casts out some seed. Some of it lands on a pathway. And what happens is birds come and eat that. That's the parable. Jesus says, here's the idea, is that there are certain people that when the word goes out, the scripture goes out, it doesn't even take any root or any effect. It goes, what would we say? In one ear and out the other. That there's no, before they can even really even think about it, man, it's gone from them. 
And he says that's the work of Satan. The enemy tries to stop people from hearing. Now, why would he tell that soil in this context? Why would he describe that soil? Well, he's just had religious leaders say he's filled with the devil. It's very descriptive of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, most of them. That they were people with hard hearts. The path represents a hard heart. The word of God doesn't, doesn't even penetrate the soil. It's grabbed before it can even be plowed. They're hard-hearted people. Now, there are many with hard hearts. This is descriptive of many people. It's not just first century religious leaders trying to kill Jesus that have hard hearts. It's decent, nice, suburban people like you and me who live busy lives, who have our own agendas and our own plans for our lives. We're occupied with pursuing our own desires, our own plans. It's people who don't really see a need for God. They, they hear about Jesus. They maybe even hear a sermon like this, but don't really see a need for God. Life is full. That's something we can get to later. That's something, it's, it's young people. It's young people who say, you know what, I'm young. I'm going to have fun while I'm young. Uh, I'm going, my parents bring me to church, so I'll come to church. But, you know, maybe one day I'll give that some thought, but that's not for me right now. It's college-age people who are saying, hey, you know what, uh, that, that's not really for me. It's people early in their career saying, hey, well, once I get married, once we settle down and have kids, I'll become a church person. But right now, you know, I've got my own agenda. It's the hard heart that any scripture that would come to that person, any knowledge of Jesus is, I'm putting that aside. They have some exposure, but it, it's quickly grabbed and it doesn't take root. Some people with hard hearts even attend church. They, even, they may be in this room this morning. It's just that there's no effect. No effect. They don't have ears to hear. And they walk out and they live with no intention of serving Jesus or knowing him or walking with him. And that's why we pray that, that as the word goes out, that the Lord would open hearts, that the Lord would plow the soil of hard hearts, that, that, word, that the word wouldn't land on a hard path and go in one ear and out the other, but it would be digested and applied to our lives. Look what he says next, verse 16. Next is the rocky soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. That's different, right? They receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. From that PhD dissertation that exists out there somewhere, uh, this is what I've read repeatedly, so someone found this out, uh, that it was common in the soil of Palestine, at least in the first century, I don't know about today, that there was frequently places where there'd be about two to three inches of soil and that it would be over a hard limestone bed. And so that, what Jesus describes is perfectly tenable in the first century. The, the farmer casts out the seed, the seed goes into the dirt, the, seed, the, the plant sprouts up, you see something, oh, growth. But what happens is there's no place for the roots to go. You got two to three inches, then it hits limestone, and then the plant withers. It's a very realistic story, of, account of what could happen in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, that's how people are with my word. Here's what happens. They hear it, and immediately they spring up. They spring up with great joy. They're excited about the message of Jesus. 
but it only lasts for a short time because as soon as difficulty, especially resistance to their faith occurs, they shrivel up and die. It doesn't really take. Now, if the hard heart, the pathway, could be represented by the Pharisees, this would be represented by the crowds in Jesus' day. We could say this is the shallow heart. So the crowds show up, they see Jesus' miracles, they're like, yes, this is great. And they're all excited about Jesus. They even stick around for the teaching. And, and, then, and then they go about their life and, and, and they, they want to follow him, they want to believe, but difficulty comes and they just not in. Or they gather and Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He multiplies food miraculously and everybody's like, this is great. I'm all about following Jesus. He fed us for free, miraculously. But then they go back to their life and it's just, it just doesn't last when the difficulties of life come along. We've, we've all known people like this who go through their religious phase They hear the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus. They're all excited. Wow, what happened to them? Maybe they're even like a Jesus freak, crazy person for a while. Or maybe they just start making some life changes. Oh, what's happening? Well, I believe in Jesus now. And there's some changes and they're excited about it. But what happens is it's not all rosy. Life on this life, even as a Christian, has difficulty. And not everybody's excited about the fact that they believe that this person believes in Jesus. So they get some resistance. They get challenged, and they, they just give up. They're kind of like fireworks. They go up in the sky. Have you ever seen the kind of fireworks that kind of explode, and then you can see a little tail coming down, a little fizzling uh, in the sky. There's little sparks that kind of fizzle out. That's this person. They hear the gospel. They hear about Jesus. They respond, explosion. This is great. Everybody's excited for them, but then they just sort of fizzle out when difficulty comes. We've known people like that. They got baptized. They were full of zeal. But then, soon enough, they go back to their old life, never to follow Jesus again, because there's no rooting in their faith. This is happening culturally in the U.S. in droves uh, with young people that are growing up in the evangelical church and then reaching adulthood. And when they go off to their job or move out of the house or go, frequently go to college, what often happens is they leave their faith behind. Why? Because the summer camp, give my life to Jesus experience, the memorable go on the mission trip and serve the needy experience didn't really take root in their souls. It was just an emotional high And then when they get off to college, and now there's some smart guy, said with air quotes, there's some smart guy in a classroom philosophically challenging their faith, they have no root. When they're tempted to live in a way that is different than the way they were raised, and they're free to do what they want with no mom and dad looking over their shoulder, with the youth youth pastor far in the rearview mirror and all the church folk back home, there's no root and there's pressure, and there's resistance to their faith. And what you find out is that their Christian faith, when their parents were not there taking them to church, doing family devotion, modeling the Christian life for them, that what happened was they just had a shallow emotional experience in two to three inches of dirt. But when they were challenged, there was no place for the roots to grow, and they withered away. 
Now, that's why we are aware of that and aware of that tendency for all of us and in, in praying and trying to equip families and, and speak to students like next weekend's Rise Up weekend is not geared to be the experience I just described. I'm sure there'll be some emotional highs and I'm sure there'll be some memorable things happen, but it's going to be rooted in the truth of Scripture which endures. Rocky soil, it's the shallow heart. Next, he speaks of thorny soil, verse uh, 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter out and, and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, so this kind of seed goes into the ground, but what happens is as it grows, thorns grow and it chokes it out. And Jesus says what that is is that some of the challenges of life that come and that, that choke out the life of the plant. The problem with thorny soil is not so much the soil itself, but it's that the weeds are allowed to grow along with the plant and they kill the crop. It represents the divided heart. So if the path is the hard heart, the rocky soil is the shallow heart, the thorny soil is the divided heart. Why divided? Because you've got the plant and the weeds growing together. And Jesus says you can't have a divided heart to follow him and know him. You can't have a divided heart. That's why he says, among the thorns, they hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire of other things. So they, they're weighed down by the word. They hear the gospel. They believe in Jesus. They want to live for the Lord. But man, there is so much pressure in life. And when the life pressures come, rather than turn back to Jesus, they turn elsewhere. And it chokes out their life, spiritual life. Or the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of riches. Why are riches deceitful? Because riches promise a false security. We all give in to believing the lie. If I have enough money, I'll be secure. If I have enough money, I'll be okay. If I don't have to worry about bills, then everything is fine. If I have a big enough retirement nest egg, then life will be good. So we all are tempted to place our trust in money and things, but, but that's a false god. And, and we see this even in the scripture. Jesus speaks to the rich, run, run, rich young ruler, and uh, he, he wants to hang on. He wants to hang on to everything he has. He doesn't want to give up his true God, which is wealth. And he turns away and doesn't follow Jesus. Salvation is by free grace. It is by free grace, and it costs the disciple the investment ultimately of his life. We receive the grace of God by opening our life to Jesus. What he's saying is the cares of the world, money, the desire of other things, anything else that challenges, you can't serve more than one God. There's one true God is what he says, and you can't serve the others or they'll choke out the life. Jesus isn't coming and presenting himself as an advisor. He's not pre presenting himself as a life coach, as a mentor, as a helper. He's presenting himself as Lord. And he calls those who hear him to come and die and follow him. Pick up your cross and follow me. And many hear the word and they, 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 they want to receive the benefits, but all the other stuff in life is too, too alluring or too difficult and they just give up and don't follow. So it's a, the, the divided heart goes more than one way. Um, and, and, and in particularly, the temptation to wealth is so deceitful for all of us. I mean, we live in an area that is, 
that is all flash all around us all the time. And there is a temptation that I need that and I need to do whatever I can to get that and then I'll have real meaning in real life. And it can, it can choke out the life of the Lord in us. Lastly, he mentions the good soil. Verse 18, the others, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 20. But those uh, that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So these people hear, they welcome Jesus, they receive, their ears are open, their hearts are soft, they receive what the Lord does for them, they respond to him, and God brings a huge harvest in their life. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's a really good return, I'm told. It's probably in the same PhD dissertation, but I'm told 30, 60, 100-fold is a good return. That's what I've read. It's a good return. And so these people have a fruitful life. They're unlike the hard heart, which doesn't even receive at all. They're unlike uh, the shallow heart, which receives and is excited momentarily and then gives up when difficulty comes. They're not like the divided heart, which says, I want Jesus and I want Jesus with me. Uh, If you're old like me, uh, in the 1970s, there was a bumper sticker. Now, now maybe somebody had this in their car and now I'm in trouble. If if you had this, you're going to feel ashamed by me. So I love you. But this bumper sticker was ill-advised if you had it on your car. There used to be a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is my co-pilot. That means I'm in the driver's seat and he's riding alongside me. And so that is the divided heart again. When we go to the car, Jesus is not calling shotgun. He does not want to ride alongside and you drive the vehicle. He is Lord. And so there's not the divided heart. It is the, the soil, the good soil is the fruitful, the receptive heart. There are two types of hearers here today. Four types of soil, but really only two types of hearers in the room. There's only two types. We, we demographically divide people up in so many ways in our culture, don't we? We divide. Everyone is divided up. There's the young and the old, the rich and the poor. We divide along race lines. Uh, there's all kinds of division of how we sort people out, but there's really only two. When, when we hear the word of God, like today, there's really only two. There's hearts that are receptive and that there's hearts that aren't in the long term. Now, the hearts that aren't can look like three different ways he describes here. Um, and, and that's why he says we want to listen because we want to have hearts that receive our good and gracious God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He comes to live a perfect life, to show the love of God to people, to show the power of God, the mercy of God, the rule and the reign of God to, to those, anyone who will listen to him. We are all by nature sinners. God is holy. We are sinful. We by nature, live for ourselves. The Bible says we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. But we don't typically love God with everything in us all the time. We don't typically love our neighbor as ourself. And so that, that means that we, we break God's law. We defy his law. We don't live for this wonderful, beautiful, gracious, holy, majestic God. We live for ourselves. We live for the riches of the world. We live for having things our way. We live for our own agendas. 
And so because of that, we're all sinful and we're deserving of God's judgment. But that's why Jesus came. He came to live a perfect life in our place. He came to die for our sins, to give his life for us, to be buried and to be raised on the third day so that anyone who would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and say, I believe in you. I receive the truth about you. I want to be forgiven my sins. I want a new life. I want to know the purpose for which I was created. I want to... I want to receive eternal life. I want to be with you forever, God, in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. I want a new heart. I want a clean conscience. I want to please you. I want to know your love and share your love with others. This is what I want. I want my sins forgiven and a new life. All we need to do is to come to him, to turn from the sins that he died for, and to believe and to give our lives to him, to to believe and to trust him and to ask him for forgiveness and new life. That's the good soil. And when we do that, God will begin to produce a harvest in our lives. Usually in the parables in in the Bible, harvest is usually a picture of the last day judgment. And it may be here. It may be that Jesus says, those who receive my word and believe in me, here's what happens at the last day. Their lives are full of fruit. They stand before the Lord and say, Lord, here's what you did in my life. Here's how my life counted for you. Here's how I lived for you by your grace and by your power. Here's what you did in me, for me, and through me. It may be a picture of that last day, but it's also true that we're bearing fruit in this day. So those who receive the word of God, who really hear it and who act upon what they hear and respond, there's a fruitfulness to their lives. Fruitfulness doesn't mean prosperity in a physical sense. Fruitfulness doesn't mean new cars, doesn't mean sickness-free life, no problems, every relationship is perfect. That's called heaven. That doesn't happen. I don't know about not the new cars part, but the perfect relationships part. That doesn't happen here. It may be that God bears fruit through suffering. In the Bible, God frequently bears fruit through suffering. God frequently bears fruit through persecution and difficulty as he works, uh, as he works a love for uh, him in our hearts through our challenges. So bearing fruit doesn't always mean I'm healthy, wealthy, strong, fit, happy. I'm living the ideal American dream. It doesn't often mean that. Uh, But it means in whatever situation I have, in my marriage, God wants to bear fruit. may come through difficulty, but God wants to bear fruit. Bearing fruit means he wants me to be more like Jesus. In my marriage, God wants to make me and my wife more like Christ. God in my workplace wants me to represent him and wants me to use my job so that I can work for his glory, so that my work is an act of worship to him and I'm giving myself to what he created me for. That's bearing fruit. So that I'm a good friend and a good neighbor and a good citizen, that I'm living my life wherever I am in all my relationships, in all my callings and responsibilities, I'm bearing fruit. That is, I'm becoming more like Christ as I do whatever I do. I'm representing him before others. I'm encountering him. I'm growing. I'm maturing. I'm becoming more like him. The the, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. This fruit is becoming more and more real in my life. I'm bearing fruit. I'm looking more and more like Christ. That's what God wants to do in our lives. And it all comes through receiving the grace of new life in him and then daily receiving his grace word. That's what he calls us to. The other options all end in destruction. 
The hard heart is the person who lives for themselves and never, this is tragic, never knows the gracious God who loves them in Jesus Christ. Others respond momentarily, but when the slight difficulty comes, rather than leaning on God and walking through the difficulty with God, our our comforter and our strength, give up on God. Other people want Jesus and Jesus imitations. I'll take Jesus and all the little idols I can accumulate of success and pride and possessions and life just the way I want it and all my little stuff. I want Jesus and everything that I want that I think will make me happy instead of I want Jesus and everything he provides for me as a gift from him to worship him with and through and to use for his glory. Do you see that? So all of those are destructive. It's the tragedy of throwing your life away to receive the seed and not let it take root in your heart. But to receive it, to listen well, to listen undistracted with an undivided heart and to act on what we hear and to respond to him, it's life as it was created to be. There's application, and I'll wrap up here, there's application for us as a church too. Commentaries are books where scholars write and explain parts of the scripture. And I I frequently will read commentaries. They'll tell me what certain words mean that I might not know. They'll tell me about farming customs of the first century. They'll point out certain things that I might not be aware of. And so I often use them to help me interpret scripture. I never use them to apply scripture because they don't usually tell us, so here's how, commentaries don't say, so here's how you live it out. Well, I read a commentary about this this week by a guy named uh, David Garland. And I thought it's application. I read it. I said, I've almost just got to read you what he said. I'm paraphrasing. But this is, he said, application, and this is for us, Grace Church. This is for us in this season and for our future. This is what he says. Number one, this parable teaches the sower does not prejudge the soil. He sows with abandon. We don't know the condition of the soil, so we sow, God would, but we don't, so we sow wherever we can. You don't know who's going to respond to God. The people voted least likely to follow Jesus in the Bible are following Jesus. The people everyone would vote most likely to follow God are saying Jesus is filled with demons. And he's saying, you got a hard heart and you don't even, it goes in one ear and out the other. It is an upside down kingdom. I don't care how antagonistic the person is to Christ. You don't know what God's doing under the surface in their lives. Your family member that you have prayed for for 30 years, you don't know that today God might not give them new life. You don't know that that person who is living a lifestyle that you think is as far from Christianity as you can imagine, you don't know that they won't show up here next Sunday if you invite them. You do not know the heart. And that's why, like the sower, we sow as liberally as possible. Anyone who will hear, we want to tell them the good news of Jesus. Number two, he says, fruitfulness comes from God. That's the truth of any agricultural metaphor. To know the mystery of the kingdom is something God gives us. He gives us ears to hear. He opens our eyes. God is the one who works. That is so important for us to realize, church. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted seeds, another guy came in, he taught, that was kind of watering the seeds, but anybody that responded, that's the work of God. So if God's going to do anything in us and through us, it's going to be because of him. God gives fruitfulness. We don't. Sower doesn't prejudge the soil. Fruitfulness comes from God. Sowers are called to be faithful and leave the results to God. We just cast the seed and we see what God will do with it. 
That's what I think this building, this location, it's just a tool from God. It's just an environment to cast seed and for us to gather and worship him, obviously. But it's an environment for seed casting. And if it happens that our move to this location allows us more soil to cast seed upon, may it be. But we're not here to get the numbers up or something like that. We're here to be faithful to God, to teach his word, to represent him by loving and serving others, to live as humble, repentant followers of Jesus, to build community together that reflects what the love of God looks like in action, and then leave all the results to God and allow God to evaluate and God to judge what's happening. It's not to pat ourselves on the back when things by external metrics look good, and it's not to be woe is me when external metrics look bad. I've been around long enough to know the metrics go up and down, and the goal is faithfulness to God. I love that. Cast the seed out and let God do with it what he will. None of us will stand before God and get evaluated on what crop came up. We'll get evaluated on were we faithful to represent him and cast the seed. The last thing he says is this, and we really are done uh, now, uh, and that is, he says, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. He says, quote, the parable does not tell us how to become good soil, only to be careful how we hear. There's not a good soil nutrient program in this parable. There's not, here's how you amend the soil to make it healthier. There's not a miracle grow product to put in the soil that Jesus is giving us here. In, in this parable, all he says is listen at the beginning and at the end for him who has ears to hear. The goal is that we listen with lack of, without distraction, with hearts focused, and respond to Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.